First Corinthians chapter 11, and we will be working our way from verse 17 down to verse 34 of First Corinthians 11. <clears throat> now, if you've been with us, you know that we've been doing um, a series called Rediscover Church, we have been, where we've been going through first definitions, what is the church, what does she do, why is she even here? And we've gone through different aspects of what we do and how we live together as a church. And today, we are going to be talking about the ordinances. That's a big fancy word, and we will be explaining a little bit about what that means. These ordinances, these things that Christ has ordained to be done until he returns. A, a mental image I want you to have a little bit by way of story helps me understand kind of the value of ordinances. I don't know if you've ever been um, in one country, born and raised a citizen of one country, but you kind of secretly wanted to be from another country, right? Based on those smiles, I take that as a yes. When I was younger, I really wanted to be a Jamaican. I just think they're the coolest people in the world. They single-handedly gave us Bob Marley, Usain Bolt, Shelly Ann Fraser Price, Chaka Demas and Pliers. I could go on, by the way. Not to mention they have the coolest accent anywhere, right? Now, imagine if I left Nairobi, Kenya, where I was born and raised, and showed up in Jamaica because, you know, I love Jamaica, Kingston, and I show up in Kingston, and I'm like, Wagwan. They'd probably tell me, not Nagwan, go home. Like, how do you just show up here expecting to be a Jamaican? That's not how this works, bro. And I can fake the accent all I want, but I'm one of you. No, go home, right? It's great that I love them. It's great that I love their culture, but I'm not Jamaican. I'm just another Kenyan. For me to become a Jamaican, something very significant needs to happen. I need to not just take a trip from Kenya to Jamaica and therefore become a Jamaican. No, I need to take the trip to Jamaica and be recognized by the official government of Jamaica as a Jamaican. They have to confer on me citizenship in the Republic of Jamaica, and I have to renounce my Kenyan citizenship so that I may become a Jamaican citizen. In much the same way, what these ordinances do is identify who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We don't just show up to the kingdom and be like, Wagwan! No, an official thing happens, and we have to be officially, formally recognized as citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's what the ordinances do. They help us recognize who are the citizens of the kingdom. They tell the world who the citizens of the kingdom are. And oh, by the way, the king himself says, these are my citizens. So as we read and work through what we are calling the ABCs of the ordinances, have that picture in mind, that these ordinances help us actually identify who the citizens of this kingdom called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God are. And we are calling it the ABCs of the ordinances. In other words, the authority behind these ordinances that show us who the citizens are. And what are these ordinances? The B, baptism. And the C, communion. The authority behind the ordinances, baptism as one of the ordinances, and communion as the second ordinance. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 17 to 34, and then we shall pray and dive in. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 17. 
but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, the other, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so now, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the ABCs of the ordinances. Authority, baptism, communion of the ordinances. So what are these things called ordinances? That word ordinances comes from the word ordain or order. An ordinance is a formal authoritative order that has been ordained by an authority, right? A ruler, cities have ordinances. So the rulers of the city give a formal authoritative order. They ordain the order. The ordinances are the same way. They have been ordained by a ruler, and they are a formal authoritative order to be practiced and done and obeyed 
until Christ returns by his church. So we first have to ask these things that have been ordered, what's the authority behind them? Who gets to say that we must do X or Y or Z? Well, Jesus Christ is the head and has ultimate authority over his church and he has delegated that authority to his church. Who is ultimately in charge of everything, everywhere, all the time? Jesus Christ, Matthew 28, 18. All authority, Jesus said, has been given to me. That means he's in charge of everything. Only thing is, Jesus isn't around here right now. We can't say, look, that's the king. He's spoken and he has said this, therefore we must do this. He has acted in this way, therefore we must follow that action. He's not physically here with us, right? He, was, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall return to judge the quick and the dead. But until that day when he returns to judge the quick and the dead, we have to ask, okay, who has the king's authority? The king was authority in heaven and earth. Who has his authority? to determine what is said and done. Basically, who speaks and who acts on the king's behalf. The king himself would say, Jesus, King Jesus would say, my body. I am the head of my body, and my, my body does what I, the head, tell it to do. It moves as I tell it to move. That's what Colossians 1.18 says. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. And Jesus has given the church his authority to speak and act on his behalf. In short, Jesus has given his authority to the church to rightly preach the word, which is the gospel, and rightly administer the ordinances. You want to know what a church's big job is? It's those two things. Rightly preach the word and rightly administer the ordinances. These things that God has ordained and ordered as formal practices to be done by his church until his return. So that's the authority. We know where the authority is from, but we are still confused about, okay, these two animals called baptism and communion. What are those? What is this thing called baptism and what is it designed to do? So here's a mouthy definition and then we'll break it down. Baptism is a church's act in which they affirm and depict a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water. And at the same time, it is a believer's act of publicly committing themselves to Christ and to his people, thereby making them a member of the local church and marking them off as separate from the world. I know that look. <laughs> Let's break it down slowly. Baptism is, number one, an act of the church. See, baptism has two actors, right? It has two players. The person baptizing and the person being baptized. And the main actor is the person baptizing. If you forget everything else about baptism, remember that, that it is an act of the church before it is an act of the believer. It is the whole church as the main actor saying, we are using Jesus' authority that he gave us, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Matthew 28, we're using the authority Jesus gave us to say, you, this one, this individual is a Christian. 
We are affirming them. This person who claims to be a Christian, we as an entire church are using all of Jesus' authority to say that. Consider how in Matthew 16, Jesus gives authority to his apostles to speak on his behalf, to share the gospel. When Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father which is in heaven... Therefore, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's giving his authority to the apostles to declare the message that will bring people into the kingdom of the king, into the kingdom of God. In Matthew 18, he gives that exact same authority, not just to the apostles, but to the whole church and uses the same language. What you bind will be bound. What you loose will be loosed. In other words, the people you bring into the kingdom will be brought into the kingdom and the people you see out of membership in the church, those people will be seen out of membership in the church because you're using my authority to do that. So in Matthew 28, when he says, all authority has been given to me, therefore, go make disciples. And the first thing he tells them to do is what? Go make disciples of all nations. And then the next word is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And those are the two things that determine what kind of church has the authority, has King Jesus' authority to baptize people. It's two things. A church that has the right gospel, that declares the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who came, lived a perfect life, died on behalf of sinners, rose again and will return. And those who repent and believe in him will have eternal life. A church that preaches that gospel has King Jesus' authority to baptize. But that church also has to believe in the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That a church that knows that we have one God who has eternally existed as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, that church has King Jesus' authority to actually perform these ordinances. If they don't meet those two requirements, they have no business issuing the passport of the kingdom of God. On January 26th, there's an article that came out from the Mumbai police, and they said they had caught two individuals who had an, a passport printing, a fake passport printing scam. And these two individuals had printed as much as 28 different passports for different people. And they were eventually caught by the Mumbai police. Now, they didn't give the details of exactly how this scam worked. But imagine if you were an Indian and you needed a passport because you said, I want to go to Dubai and see how things work in Dubai, right? And so these two individuals find you and they say, actually, we are emissaries of the government. We work on their behalf. So if you want your passport expedited, you want to get it quickly, just give us a certain amount of money. It's a little more than what the government would ask you for, but you'll get it really quickly. You'll get it in like three days. And you can take your passport and then go about your travels. And you're like, great! You take them at their word, you believe them because they told you they're acting on behalf of the government. So you pay them a handsome amount of money. You get your passport in three days. It looks legit. And then you get on a plane. And you get to Dubai. And you get to immigration. And they're looking at your passport. <laughs> and they have technology in the airports of this country, that within 15 to 30 seconds, they can determine whether your passport is real or fake. They will take your passport and be like, ah, welcome to jail. <laughs> because clearly your passport is fake. And you'll be there be like, ah, but, but I'm, an, I'm actually an Indian. I was born in Chennai. Great, go to jail. We have no way of knowing that, man. But don't you see I look Indian? Yeah, there are Kenyans who look Indian. 
We are happy for you. Go to jail. Do you see? The problem is not the individual. They are actually a citizen of India. The problem is they went to an embassy that has no business giving out passports. That's the problem. In the same way, baptism that is an act of the church can only be done by a church that has been authorized by Jesus. How do we know that that church has been authorized by Jesus? Do they preach the gospel? And are they a Trinitarian church? So maybe you're here and you got baptized in a Catholic church. Well, they don't preach the one true gospel. They don't preach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. They preach that you need to add some works to your faith. And we are saying, no, that's the exact opposite message of the whole Bible. So they might have baptized you, but they had no business doing so. King Jesus did not recognize them as an official embassy that can issue you with a passport of the kingdom, which is what baptism is like. Maybe you're here and you got baptized in an Orthodox church. Same problem. King Jesus didn't give them his authority because they're preaching a different gospel. They're not preaching his gospel. Maybe you're here and you came from a kind of oneness, Pentecostal, Unitarian background that doesn't teach that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there's one God who sometimes shows up as the Father, sometimes shows up as the Son, sometimes shows up as the Spirit. Sorry, it's not you who's at fault. That church had no business, no authority from King Jesus to give you that passport called baptism. And a common problem where I come from, and I'd argue from the global south, maybe you came from a prosperity preaching church who says that, yes, 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 believe in Jesus and he will make your life fantastic. In fact, your life has to be wealthy, prosperous, healthy. That's how you know you're a real citizen of the kingdom. And we would say, no, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in accordance with the scriptures. That church had no business baptizing you even if you were a genuine believer. Baptism is an act of the church that has King Jesus' authority. And they use that authority to baptize you. And what we are saying, what the Bible says is happening in baptism, is a believer's faith is being affirmed and depicted. We are saying, yeah, this one, this individual, the church is using authority to say this one belongs to Jesus. They are affirming that and saying, we agree that they are a Christian. And we are dramatically portraying it. In Romans 6, when Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? He's assuming this is what you people already had this happen to you. All of us who were baptized into Christ. He's assuming it already happened to you. Because you are in Christ. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And right there is a little hint that there's something unique happening in baptism. That baptism is being given as a sign of newness of life. A sign that someone is a member of the new covenant community. See, in the old covenant, you became a member of the old covenant by ethnic and familial descent and circumcision. 
So Abraham was told, all your descendants, the sign that I am in covenant with them is circumcision. And if you are not a Jew and wanted to be part of the covenant community, you had to get all the males in your family and circumcise them. That was the sign that you are a member of the old covenant people of God. But in the new covenant, the sign of the covenant is not circumcision. In the new covenant that God promised in Ezekiel 36 and places like Jeremiah 31 where he said, I will put my spirit in them. I will take out their hearts of stone, put my spirit in them and move them to follow my laws. The sign that someone has God's spirit in them is that they have believed in Christ. And the sign we give them is called baptism. So that now they're walking in the newness of life precisely because they have a new spirit and a new heart. Or consider Galatians chapter 3 from verse 25 to 27, which makes a similar point. Here's what it says. I'll read it in the interest, um, interest of time. Galatians 3, 25 to 27. It would be great if I could find Galatians 3. Ah, here we go. <laughs> But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. But in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. But in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How do we become sons of God? And that's a, actually a loaded term. Every man and woman is a son of God. Why? Because they have an inheritance from the Father. He is their great inheritance. How are they sons of God? Through faith. Therefore, they were baptized into Christ. So it is not that our baptism makes us sons of God. And that is another place where respectfully we would disagree with our Catholic and Orthodox friends and neighbors and family members. The official teaching of the Orthodox Church and to the best of my knowledge, the Catholic Church is that the act of baptism saves people. That's the exact opposite of what Galatians 3, 25-27 is saying. In fact, here's the, a statement from the Orthodox Church in America. Through the act of immersion, the baptized person dies to this world and is born again in the resurrection of Christ into eternal life. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says you are born again by faith in Christ, not by immersion. In fact, 1 Peter makes that doubly clear. He says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not, not as the removal of death from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter clarifies that what saves you is not water that just washes over you. That just makes you wet and clean. What saves us what makes us internally and eternally clean is faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who washes away all our sins. And baptism is designed to dramatize that, that we have been buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. The very word baptizo means to immerse. So we are immersed as a sign of our death with Christ and being raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. And that is the act of the church. The church does that. But remember, it's not just an act of the church. There are two actors, right? The main actor, the baptizer, the church. And who's the second actor? The believer. It is a believer's act of saying, I publicly commit to Christ 
and his people. This is what happened in Acts chapter 2 from verse 37 down to 41. After, pre- after Peter has preached the gospel, verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then listen to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. Those who received his word, in other words, believed in him, trusted in him, they were baptized. Again, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. The disciples, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, baptize those believers, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. It is publicly committing to Christ, and there's no way to commit to Christ and not to commit to his people. Right? As a friend kept telling me when I was growing up, if you're going to have God for a father, start getting used to all of his weird kids. You're going to have Jesus Christ for your big brother, just get used to all of your other siblings. If you're going to have the Holy Spirit indwell you, recognize he indwells them too. To commit to Christ is to commit to his people. In that passage of Acts chapter 2, after they repented, and after they believed, repented, and were baptized, Scripture says, those who received were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Who are they added to? The church. In Acts chapter 1, there were 120. After Pentecost, they became 3,120. They exponentially grew. Those were added to the church. And that's part of why to be united to Christ means we're united to his people and specifically means we're united to a local church. God is a father. And in his kindness, he doesn't just let his children float around the world amorphously. He puts them in specific spiritual families called local churches. In baptism, we are not only committing to Christ and his people in terms of the universal church. We are saying, I am a member of this church. I am a member of the church that has baptized me and I am publicly saying I not only belong to God, I belong to them. And oh yeah, they belong to To me, it marks off someone as belonging to Christ, to the church, and no longer to the world. They are now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, no longer the kingdom of the world. And that can be hard because that action of ripping away from our natural, worldly relationships can be rough. When I was in the States, I had a friend called Pooja, and she'd, she's born and raised in America. She's American, but Indian, and she grew up in a Hindu family, pretty strong Hindu family. When she was in her first year of university, she must have been around 18 or 19 years old, people from campus outreach shared the gospel with her, and in time, she came to faith. The Lord called her to himself. She trusted in Jesus Christ. She turned away from her sin, and she became a Christian and started going to church. But as she grew, she realized scripture commands her to get baptized. So she went to her pastors and, and was like, hey, I, I, I think I need to get baptized. I've, I've become a Christian. And they were like, we agree. We believe with you. believe with you that you are a Christian. However, you need to go tell your family. And she was like, ah. Because she knew how that would end. But thankfully, her love for God 
superseded her fear of her family. And trembling, <laughs> she went and told them. They didn't take it so well. But they figured, okay, you're like 19, 20, maybe it's a phase. You'll meet a good Hindu boy and then you leave this, this silliness of Christianity. But the opposite happened. <laughs> as she kept growing in her faith, as she got baptized, as she became a faithful member of the church, she met a good American boy who loved Jesus. And they were starting to serve Jesus together. And she, after being proposed to, said, I'm going to marry this guy. Yeah, that really went badly with her family. Because she was insulting them on two levels. Level one, you're leaving our religion. Level two, you're leaving our community. You couldn't find someone from our, like, you had to leave. And now you've locked yourself for the rest of your life, not only with this man, but this man's religion. And they stopped talking to her. And they, they genuinely love her, but their understanding was, you've rejected us. And it was hard for her, but forsaking all others, she said, I'm going to follow my king and let the chips fall where they may. Friend, are you a bit like Puja? Maybe you've been coming to ECC for years and you've never gotten baptized because you know if you told your family, if you told your friends, yeah, that wouldn't end so well. And you're afraid of how hard it would be to rip apart from them. Ah, but friend, I guarantee you, right here in this congregation are people who've done the same. And who even now, Jesus is encouraging in their faith. Just in our last members meeting, one of our new members called Ashwin Giridharan grew up in a Hindu context with friends and family who are Hindu. By God's grace, had a friend who shared the gospel with him. He came to faith as he was reading the book of Romans and then decided, okay, I need to get baptized, but paused because he realized there's ramifications for that, for his family, for himself. And he took time reading literature on baptism, reading scripture until he was sure that this is what Christ demands because with Christ, obedience is better late than never. And when he got baptized, check this out. When he got baptized, he invited his whole family and all his Hindu friends. They occupied a whole row of the church. Do you know what happened at that baptism? He got up, read his testimony, saying that I am with Christ, and then read the gospel, sharing the gospel with his family who was right there, and then he got baptized as a dramatic picture of the gospel, that he is dead with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. Do you see? That kind of evangelistic opportunity is exactly what baptism does. It's usually hard to witness to members of our family. We'll witness someone on the street or a workmate, our mom, yeah, our siblings, yeah. He did that simply by obeying the command to be baptized. And maybe you're here and you've not been baptized and you're like, what's the big fuss? It's my personal faith. Jesus knows my heart. Amen. It is your personal faith. But Christianity has no private faith. We have a king who was publicly executed, publicly rose, will publicly return for you. And he, as Hebrew says, is not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. I pray that you would see this sign of the new covenant that God is giving you, saying, you are mine. Because in baptism, while the Christian is publicly declaring something to the whole church and to the world, 
God is also saying, that's my child. That's my baby and I'm proud of them. I saved them and I will stick with them until they get home. Or maybe you're here and you have been baptized. But in your mind, meh, wasn't that big a deal. Has nothing to do with my church membership. No, that's the front door to how you became a member of the church. And it gave you membership in the church. It's part of why we don't do altar calls at ECC. Altar calls are not how God told us to publicly declare our faith. Baptism is. It is an act of the church done by a gospel-preaching Trinitarian church that has been authorized by Christ to perform these ordinances and it unites us to a local church and says, this individual, this is a Christian. The authority behind these ordinances is King Jesus himself. The A. The B is baptism. But baptism is only half of the story. It has to go with another ordinance called communion, or sometimes called the Lord's Supper. The two have to work together. They're like two sides of the same coin. What is communion? Here's a simple way of thinking about it. If baptism says this individual is a Christian, communion says these people are one church. Got it? Baptism, this person. Communion, these people. Communion is a church's act in which they have communion with Christ and one another, commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine, and it is a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and to his people, thereby making them one with the local church, actually creating the church, and marking off the church from the world. Let's break it down. Communion is an act of the church. Again, two actors, right? The church and the believer. Communion is an act of the church. It is a church meal. That's why it's called the Lord's Supper, and it is only for the whole church as a church. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's do a, a quick Bible study. Every time you see the words, come together, just shout them out, okay? Every time you see the words, come together in your Bibles, I'm reading from the ESV, just shout them out. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you... It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you, as a church, I hear the divisions among you. Verse 20. When you, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you, it will not be for judgment. Do you see? What is the context that we are supposed to have Holy Communion? When we, exactly, come together. As a church, this is not a meal for a small group. This is not a meal for families. This is not a meal for couples. This is not a meal for you and I individually as an intense form of our quiet time. This is a whole church's meal. The church, as a church, meets together to have this meal. And why do they meet together to have this meal? So that they may have communion with Christ. One chapter earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 to 17, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not our participation in? In other words, sharing in or communing in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break, is it not a participation in or sharing in or communing in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many become one, for we partake of the one bread. In communion, we commune with Christ, not just me communing with Christ. It's the whole church doing this. It's a church's meal. And I commune, we rather, commune with Christ, and we commune with one another. Because there's no way to commune with Christ and jettison his people. We commune with one another. The Lord's Supper gives expression to our union with Christ. Therefore, it gives expression to our unity with each other. And what are we doing when we are communing with Christ? We are commemorating his death. Right? Think of the language used to talk about the Lord's Supper. Breaking. Pouring. Drinking. Jesus said in Luke 22, and he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup later after that and did a similar thing. That idea of breaking is meant to remember, make us remember how Christ's body was ripped and whipped and torn apart for us. That idea of pouring and drinking is meant to make us remember how God's wrath was poured on Christ for us and he drank the bitter cup of God's wrath to its dregs, turned it over and said, it is done for my people. That's what it's meant to remind us of. We look back. In other words, we bring the past into the present when we have communion. But we also bring the future into the present. Because Jesus didn't just say, do this in remembrance of me. Paul would say, and Jesus would say, whenever you drink this cup, we are declaring the Lord's death until he returns. And Jesus said, I will not drink of this with you again until the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are looking forward to the day when Christ himself will quite literally set a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We are looking forward to the day when we are no longer the bride of Christ, but we are the wife of Christ. We are called the wife in Revelation 19. Right now we are the bride. We are waiting for that time. We are anticipating it. And every time we take of the Lord's Supper, we are saying, oh, he's coming. And I can't wait for that day. That the same God who saved me is the same God sustaining me, and he's the same God who will bring me home. That's happening when we have the Lord's Supper. We are telling that to each other and to Christ. It is also a believer's act. It's the church's act. That's what the church is doing. And it does it by partaking of the bread and the wine, which was Jesus' idea, by the way. It wasn't the church's idea. He's the one who came up with this. And it is a believer's act. We are called to individually examine ourselves. We are called to individually discern the body of Christ. You know the fastest way to ruin a dinner party? Show up to the party early, eat all the food, and get drunk. You do a great job of ruining that party. That's what these guys in Corinth were doing. (laughs) They'd show up early, eat all the food, finish all the wine. When everyone else shows up, they're like, is there any left for us? Yeah, that's not the Lord's Supper. Because remember, it's about us individually communing with Christ, yes, but also communing with one another. We have to examine ourselves so that we don't despise the body, that we recognize rightly the body. Now, what does that phrase mean? 
rightly recognize the body and not despise the body, in the immediate context, it means we don't do what these guys were doing. Just eating as though it's any other meal, thoughtlessly. Despising our neighbors, acting like we don't care about them, whether they eat or not, meh. But it also means we don't despise Christ and our neighbors, that we don't come to this meal hating other members of the church, having quarrels and fights and factions and dissensions with other members of the church. It certainly means that if you are not a believer, then this meal is not for you because you've rejected Christ in a sense you're despising him and to take this meal would mean for you and for those who take it in an unworthy manner, as has been described, judgment. That's what Paul says. You'll literally be drinking judgment upon yourself and upon myself if we take it in an unworthy manner. So 1 John 4.20 says, you can't claim to love God and hate your neighbor, right? Hate the other member of the church. If we are going to have this meal together, that very act of having a meal together means we have fellowship, that there's no beef between us. And in that meal, we receive the benefits of faith. We receive and enjoy anew what Christ already died to give us. We receive and enjoy his forgiveness, his reconciliation with, between us and God, our adoption as God's children. We receive those benefits and we renew our commitment. And this, by the way, is where we disagree once again with our Catholic friends and our Orthodox friends. We don't hate them, but this is where we disagree. Because the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church would teach, here's another official statement from the Orthodox Church's website. Thus, the Lord's Supper in the Orthodox Church is understood to be the genuine body and blood of Christ. We don't believe that when you eat the bread and drink the wine, Scripture doesn't teach that it actually becomes the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. No, that already happened for our salvation. What we are receiving in communion, it's a means of grace. It's one of the things God has given us to help us grow in our faith and enjoy him and commune with him. One of the words used, by the way, to describe ordinances is the word sacrament. It comes from the Latin sacramentum, which means a mystery. That in this mystery of baptism, but especially in the Lord's Supper, by faith we are enjoying receiving and exalting Christ. But it does not mean actual blood and actual flesh. In it, communion, we also renew our commitment, not just to Christ, but to one another. In this meal, what we are saying is, I will love you. I will care for you. I will give to this church. In fact, one of the um, tenets of our church covenant says we will sustain a gospel ministry in this church supporting its preaching and its ordinances. So guess what? You are responsible for making sure that the ordinances are rightly administered in this church. You're responsible for making sure that the people getting baptized actually have faith in Jesus Christ. And our giving them the sign of the new covenant is Proof that, yeah, because they have newness of life, then they ha can have the sign of newness of life. You and I, as a church, you particularly, are responsible for making sure that the Lord's Supper is had regularly in this church 
and that it is had in a worthy manner. And if you have friends and other members of the church who you know are taking it, taking it or going to take it in an unworthy manner, that you call them aside and say, yo, you need to sort out whatever problems you have with her before you take this thing. That's actually on you. It's actually on the members of the church to do that. Because what communion does is it, the language here, it makes us one and separates us from the world. In communion, the church shows up. In baptism, the believer shows up. We're like, oh, that's the believer. Communion, the whole church, Paul says, becomes one. We who are many become one body, for we partake of the one bread. Communion makes us one, marks us off as people who don't belong to the world, but people who do belong to Jesus Christ. It's kind of like marriage. So a marriage happens in two steps. Step one, certain vows are publicly made. All that I have, I share with you. All that I am, I give to you in the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forsaking all others. You make those vows publicly. And then, step two, those vows are consummated. The happening of the vows happens only once. The continual resigning, renewing, re-ratifying, if you will, repetition of those vows happens until you die or Christ returns, right? We keep telling our spouse by that consummation, all that I have, I give to you. All that I am, I give to you. I love you. I share with you. I am one with you. The church and communion, the same kind of language is used. <laughs> that God creates his church in two steps. Firstly, by the preaching of the gospel, he sends preachers, he sends his spirit to call people to himself. Those people publicly commit their faith, they make public vows by baptism. And then they consummate those vows that say, I belong to Christ and to his people in communion. And every time we have communion, we are saying, I belong to Christ and I belong to this church. I belong to Christ and I belong to you. I promise to love Christ and I promise to love you. I promise to ensure that Christ is made famous and I promise to ensure that I'll help you get safely home. Do you see? That's all happening in communion. We're not just having some ribena and bread. We are spiritually feeding on Christ. Yesterday I spoke with Pastor Wiley who we sent to plant the church in um, Aldana, what was formerly called Ruiz, the Evangelical Church of Aldana. And the church had those two steps. They made a covenant in October of last year, but they only fulfilled that second step when they had communion as a church. That is what made them one and said, these people are a church. They are not part of the world. These people are a church and they are composed of these people who are Christians. Do you see? It's kind of like having a wedding and an anniversary. I wear a wedding ring. This is a sign that I am married. This wedding ring doesn't make me married. If you're single and I give it to you, you'll just have a cool ring. You'll still be single. But for me, it is a sign that I'm married because I made certain vows publicly to my wife and to my king. Those vows were consummated and will continue to be consummated. In the same way, when we have communion, we are saying we are one and we are not part of the world. We are a church, which is a church's act. 
So let me ask you a couple of questions where communion is concerned. How do you prepare for communion? Does it matter to you that you might be harboring anger, pain, bitterness, maybe even hatred toward a member of this church? Maybe you didn't know it should matter. It really does matter. Because we can't have communion with Christ and not have communion with his people. How do you prepare and how do you receive communion? I remember being a teenager and hearing my pastor say, and it shook me, that if you intend to take communion and then just go live a, a lifestyle that hates God, please don't take this. God will kill you. I was like, what? But he had a point. He had a point. He was trying to protect me and others from taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What do you think about renewing your commitment to the members of this church? This is why I'm really excited that as a church, we are going to start saying the church covenant before we have the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is implicitly saying the things that we will start explicitly saying in the church covenant. That we will stand together as one, we will look at each other and say, oh yeah, these are the people I'm responsible for and who are responsible for me. These are the people who love me and who I love, and here's my commitment to them. We commit that we will. And I say that. So that when I take the Lord's Supper, I've said explicitly what the Lord's Supper is teaching me implicitly. There was a member of a church in Dubai, in ECCD, where this is what they did. They stood up and read the covenant, and he sat there asking himself, wait, how come I'm not standing up? Well, the pastor said it's for the members of a church, of this church. Like, yeah, why, how come I'm not standing up? That question bugged him so much, it drove him to see someone to explain the gospel to him. And he got saved and then became a member of the church. And now he stands up and says, oh yeah, this is why I stand. Because I belong to Christ and I belong to these people. How do you prepare for communion? Look at the cross Marvel at what Jesus did for you. Look around. Looking around again? Yes, look around. And see these trophies of God's grace. Look ahead that God is saving his best for last. And in communion he's saying, I'm coming back for you. Yes, you individually, but you as a people. Look in, see yourself and the muckiness and the yuckiness that's in there. And then very quickly look back at the cross. And say, in that cross there is grace greater than all your sin. Greater than all our sin as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active. And sharper than a double-edged sword. Grant that these wouldn't just be ABCs for us. But that as we participate in affirming the faith of others by baptism that as we participate in renewing our commitment to you and to each other and receiving your benefits as a church, that you'd make us one, that you'd be pleased to knit our hearts to each other. You're all we have, and you're more than everything we need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.